We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Attend Will Weber is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Canadians are finally realizing that they need leadership that gets things done. And Ontario's recent reforms to housing and healthcare are proof of that. Just get her done. Here's Scott Thompson. You know, know, I yell that at him every night. It doesn't seem to help. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Uh, still testing positive. It's a Scott Thompson home show. Welcome back. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900 CHML.com. All right. Uh, lots going on today. Still, uh, debating, um, uh, healthcare and what is going on. And it's fascinating to watch the discussion. I'm, I'm just, you know, it's there's there's so many people that support this and yet there's a few people that don't um, simply because they're either benefiting from the system staying the way that it is or they're of the political ideology that if you just keep putting good money after a bad system that somehow you will fix things and you're going to get different out- outcomes and I think Ontarians Canadians have learned and a global pandemic has proven that that just simply is not going to work you can't can't just keep passing the buck and saying we're going to do this and we're going to do that, that or you know it's because we can't do that or it's because like I was like the staffing issues. Oh my goodness, you're going to poach staff, you're going to steal from Peter to pay Paul. Like remember when employment was a great opportunity? Remember when there were tons and tons of jobs like we're seeing right now with a, a, a low unemployment rate? That's opportunity. Since when do you stop progressing because you have a shortage of labor or a shortage of profession or a shortage of anything? You can only do what you can do and you train more. That's a good thing. It's not a reason for progressing. And again, it seems to me the unions, the associations, the organizations with membership dues that people who funnel through this system and have to go through this system in order to, to be a part of it, they're the only ones that are seem to be benefiting from this. Uh, the workers certainly aren't. Uh, and certainly the Canadian public isn't. So it, it's amazing how we're watching the political grandstanding. But at the end of the day, it's getting it done. It's making changes. And the only ones that seem to be against this are those that are following the pol- political ideology or, or, or somehow benefiting from the system the way it is and just want more money thrown into something that doesn't work. Here's a, an, a report from Global's Matt Cardi about healthcare and where we are today. Premier Doug Ford says new as-of-right rules would see credentials of healthcare workers registered in other provinces and territories automatically recognized in Ontario. A doctor from British Columbia or a nurse from Quebec who wants to come and work in Ontario shouldn't face barriers or bureaucratic delays to start providing care. There will be no need to register with a regulatory college in this province, but that's not all the legislation would do, according to the Premier. Allowing nurses, paramedics and others to work outside of their regular responsibilities or settings as long as they have the knowledge, skills, and judgment to do so. A very few details were provided on both fronts. The bill is expected to be introduced next month when the legislature returns from its winter break. Matt Carty, Global News.
Uh, here's what Health Minister Sylvia Jones had to say about this new legislation. That it just seems like a no-brainer. You know, we just saw Alberta. We ran campaigns on this radio station for people. Come to Alberta! You know, as if this poaching thing doesn't happen. Create a great system that everybody wants to be a part of. Uh, here's the uh, Health Minister Sylvia Jones. At this point, the right to practice will be available and open to all Canadian jurisdictions because we know that there is an equivalent level of expertise and uh, education that is needed regardless of whether you practice in Manitoba or Quebec. And I want to reinforce, this is for people who want to practice medicine and be clinicians and healthcare professionals in the province of Ontario. We do not want to put barriers up if you want to live and work and uh, have your family in the province of Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford, the Premier, on the uh, right to practice. In February, our government will introduce new legislation that, if passed, will allow Canadian healthcare workers that are registered or licensed in another province or territory to practice in Ontario immediately without having to register again. We call these new rules as of right, and Ontario is the first province in Canada to implement them. Um, and now we're going to talk about credentials and, and how this delays the process until people file in order into this big fat system that is the healthcare system and, and how we need to make it easier for doctors and nurses to practice. A doctor from British Columbia or a nurse from Quebec who wants to come and work in Ontario shouldn't face barriers or bureaucratic delays to start providing care. These healthcare workers are highly trained. Other provinces and territories have the same high standards as we have here. So these changes, once implemented, will automatically recognize the credentials of healthcare workers registered in other provinces and territories so they can get the work as soon as they get here. Is common sense reform on healthcare what is going to bring Canadians back to the center? Because that's where the solution is. I'm sure you heard this in the newscast, and uh, Diane and Dave are keeping us abreast of the story as well. But um, you remember when on the set of Rust and Alec Baldwin uh, movie that uh, a gun he was carrying thought to have blanks, he fires it, it uh, ends up killing uh, the director. And obviously the ammunition was live. Uh, today it appears that he, well, he has been charged with involuntary manslaughter for his part in the shooting. Um, with uh, prosecutors saying that, you know, if you're handling a gun, you're pointing it, it's your responsibility to make sure it is in the condition you think it is, or at least have an expert there to verify all of this for you. Uh, to talk more about all of this, a guy who's been on many sets, uh, TV critic and author Bill Brio. You can find out more at BrioTV.com. He's with us now. Alec, or sorry, Bill, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. New Year to you too, Scott. So, uh, are, are you surprised at this charge? Let's start there. No, I mean, America is a litigious country, and, uh, you know, when a tragedy like this happens, people assess it. There's civil courts and criminal, and, uh, you know, a, a young lady's life was taken. Um, oh. Sure, her family, are, you know, are still grieving and processing. So, not not totally shocked, no. 
So, um, obviously, you've been on sets before. I'm not sure with ammunition or not, but is there a process here? Uh, Whose responsibility is it to make sure it is what it is? Well, from my experience, you know, um, several years ago, I was invited to the set of a Toronto show. It was a police, short-lived police series. Frankly, I don't even remember the name of it, but uh, I know myself and a writer from the Toronto Star were there, Ron Sa- uh, Rob Salem. And uh, we were greeted by uh, folks, uh, ballistic experts, ex-cops, who set up a little target thing for us to experience what it's like to shoot a gun on a set and what the safety protocol is like. And I think one of these cops was old enough to have, was involved with the John Eric Hexham shooting. I don't know if, if listeners remember, he was an actor on a show called Cover Up who um, sadly died in 1984. I think he... he fired a gun close to his head. I think he was joking around, but it it had a blank in it, which is basically a wad of paper or Mm -hmm. something. But the force of a gun from close range can kill you. And um, so people on the sets take this very, very seriously. So I I remember being, they took precautions. So we had ear protection and all kinds of stuff and told how to hold the gun and load it and shoot it and name it. it. It was quite a process for someone like me who was not familiar with guns. And um, so I, I got to see firsthand the precautions that should be taken. And I guess we're not taken on the set of rust. And obviously this is, or is it the actor's responsibility or there is a specialist there who handles the guns, you know, uh, from what I understand, from what I've heard, you know, the actors are doing their thing, they're, they're staging, whatever. And then when it's time for the gun, the gun comes in, it's, it's there for only that purpose of filming. And then it's immediately uh, handed back. Are there rules of engagement there or is it every set is kind of different depending upon, you know, uh, who it is? Um, what are there? Do we are are there a set of rules? I guess. I guess some of the rules depend on the. Is there a budget for safety? You know, sadly, yeah. uh, from what I remember from the coverage of this uh, back when uh, Baldwin uh, was shot uh, on the set of Rust, um, you know, there was someone responsible for munitions and and firearms and. You know, I think he was told the gun was either hot or whatever the technical term was. Uh, perhaps uh, that wasn't communicated well, or um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really not expert on the on the specifics here. But from what I understand, yeah, somebody, uh, you know, just like there's people who are there for makeup and everything else, just somebody right. who's there handling guns. Um, not often we hear of this thing, but we do certainly hear it happening with stunts. Uh, is there a similar issue here? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it, it's, um, you know, there, there's so much going on on a set when, when you're shooting. And there's usually 100 people there on the floor of a soundstage or if you're on location, sometimes many more than that. Uh, so, you know, this is nothing is taken casually. Everything that's shot is calculated and figured out. And there's a lot of experts who are involved. A director has it in his head, but there's continuity people and everything else. So um, from little I've seen of the coverage of this, though, this particular set didn't seem to be that nailed down. I'm not sure it was a union set. and uh, I'm just trying to remember exactly, but it does seem as though they had a light crew and this didn't help when it came to gun safety. 
Uh, your thoughts when you heard of this, do you think we're going to see standards change as a result? Oh, that's the sad thing, right? It's like school shootings. All of a sudden, mm. people are got, we got to get more serious about this and bring in this and that, you know, and then um, unfortunately, a few months go by. In the case of school shootings, a few hours go by and, and people yeah. don't uh, act. So I, I think, though, uh, this case in particular involving such a big star, um, well, I don't think we've seen Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live since this happened. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, a lot of people are being very, very careful on the sets now with firearms. And really, Scott, there's no need this day and age when, you know, you can simulate literally how actors look. You can make them mm. look 30 years younger. You right. can also simulate a gun going off. So why you have to fire them now is part of the question here. Boy, that's a valid point. Are they even needed? Um, right. <laughs> that's you that's know. a good point moving forward, especially with the technology we have. Uh, Bill Brio with his TV critic and author, Brio.tv, to find out more. Alec Baldwin charged with involuntary manslaughter for his part on the shooting set of Rust and the director, of course, being killed. Bill, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This is um, this is shocking, but I guess in a sense it's not surprising. Nearly four times a week, Hamilton youth visit an emergency uh, department for self-harm. Uh, public health says a significant increase in self-harm from 20, uh, 2009 to 20 for kids, kids age 4 to uh, 18 is expected to have only gotten worse. Obviously, you can imagine how a COVID-19 pandemic has fueled this fire. Let's bring in Melissa B- uh, Bixka, uh, Manager, Mental Well-Being and Substance Use within the City of Hamilton Public Health Services, Epidemiology and Wellness Division, and with us now. Melissa, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Scott. Are you, uh, this is tragic, and, and uh, but are you surprised at this, considering what we've seen with other areas, other mental illness over the course of this global pandemic? Thanks, Scott. Uh, yes, this is certainly concerning uh, uh, Concerning data on the health of our population. Uh, I would say these, uh, while they have been longstanding issues in our community, particularly amongst those who are most, most vulnerable, we have seen uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic has further impacted children and youth uh, and their health and development, again, uh, even more so amongst uh, our most vulnerable children and youth here in Hamilton. What is self-harm? Let's educate everybody on all this. Let's get right to the point of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And so when, when we're looking at self-harm data or data that is classified as self-harm, it's often uh, an event uh, attempting to harm oneself, often not necessarily with the intention of a negative outcome, uh, such as suicide, but uh, some sort of harming type behavior to oneself. Why does a person do this to themselves? Many will say you're hurting yourself. Why, why would someone inflict this pain on themselves? Scott, it, you know, often it's a comp, it's a complex set of uh, mental health factors, and you know, mm. for youth and young adults, it's such a intensive time of growth and development, um, and really uh, require uh, de- relies on, I would say, a, 
you know, continued uh, social development. Uh, it's important time of social development uh, and skill building and, you know, development of skills of resiliency and empowerment that are so critical to develop in the early years. And we do know that as you know, right from birth, um, you know, the more adverse uh, childhood events, um, such as violence or, um, you know, limited parenting supports, for example, um, can increase uh, um, negative health outcomes or, you know, not lead to the development of some of the uh, essential skill building uh, and problem solving and uh, other types of skills that um, can start to show negative mental health outcomes. Uh, it, it certainly seems that um, we've realized this during uh, the, the pandemic. Has has the pandemic drawn more attention to this sort of thing? Has it made us, ooh, yeah, I know someone or I, you know, either are or know someone who is in some uh, way suffering, whether it's, you know, not necessarily self-harm, but mental illness and such. Has the pandemic made us more aware, more sensitive to this? Yeah, Scott, that's a great question. And I think certainly, and I think it's certainly the two years of the pandemic have also had their unique challenges. Uh, You know, there's been significant service delivery interruption, you know, a lack of, uh, you know, Typical programs, for example, that may run in the community may have been interrupted. You know, social spaces. We know we had significant interruptions in uh, in schools. Uh, so I think all of those. Uh, uh, types of experiences over the past two years, um, you know, I think have also uh, are being attributed to further increases. Uh, obviously, uh, you also speak of that this does have long lasting impact for uh, for the community. We've been through this. We know in virtually every age, every demographic, everybody in somehow some form has had to uh, experience this. What can we we do moving forward to to help these specific vulnerable individuals how do we need to refocus on this yeah scott that's a great question and you know goes back to uh, as we outlined at board of health on monday child and youth is an ongoing is a priority area of focus for hamilton public health services and when we look at it from a public health approach and a pub public health lens, uh, it really looks to the area of early intervention and prevention. Uh, Like I mentioned before, you know, this work starts uh, right at the beginning uh, of life and some of the programmings that we offer both in the, you know, from prenatal uh, parenting classes to um, early programs in public health, such as our Healthy Babies and Healthy Children program, our Nurse Family Partnership program. And as we move uh, through the early years uh, and we have uh, children attending schools. We have a comprehensive school uh, nursing program that works in the school settings with students and staff and parents uh, to support youth-led and locally driven uh, mental health initiatives. We know that success in this area um, really does come from an early intervention lens and that the more interventions we can do in multiple different settings uh, is often what is needed to continue, you know, to increase skill building, build empowerment in youth, um, help develop develop resiliency uh, to continue to improve the uh, mental health of our youth and young adults. In addition, I will... 
Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Yeah. And just one other thing. Um, and then as we move on, like public health also does have our child and adolescent services. While it's not a public health mandated program, it is funded by our ministry partners and does provide counseling services for children and youth up to 17 years of age. But we are just uh, one small uh, piece of the clinical testing or uh, the clinical pathway. And, um, you know, there's lots of other excellent resources amongst our healthcare providers in the city, including um, partners such as Linwood Charlton Hall. Is there anything we've learned from this pandemic that'll change or alter the way we do things moving forward? What did we learn from all of this? Yeah, Scott, I think it, I think it's that's a really great question. And I think that's the work that we'll continue to do in this post pandemic health system recovery is to continue to, you know, um, that's one of the most important uh that's an important component of emergency response is cont- continuing to evaluate the outcomes and learn um uh learn from this experience and uh you know look at the best pace a way to move forward if uh, faced with another similar situation in our community again. Melissa Bikeso with us, Manager Mental Health, Well-Being and Substance Use within the City of Hamilton Public Health Services, Epidemiologist and Wellness Division. Melissa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great evening. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter and discussion around uh, the announcement a couple of days earlier of uh, Doug Ford's health reform and so on and so forth. And I am just finding it absolutely fascinating to watch the politics of all of this go down. And uh, it seems now uh, both the left and the right are, for the most part, uh, willing to give this a try. And I'm being generous in my choice of words there. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time hope you're well i am and thanks for having me on scott so look at this doug ford has made the first giant step towards reforming health care who would have thunk Alyssa? who would have thunk well i think it's just a big fat band-aid scott i don't call it health care reform i think he's trying something that his buddy scott mo tried in saskatchewan and that they have been doing to some extent in bc but i wouldn't say it's reform However, if we're looking at this from an optics point of view, and we can get into the nitty gritty because I'm—I was told you have some very strong opinions about this. But if you know we're talking about reform, and you know if Doug Ford is trying to, you know, put his best foot forward and saying I'm going to try and help cure the ills of the healthcare system, then you know. This is a small step towards, what do they say, mankind, but it is certainly not a cure-all. No, but it is one giant leap, isn't it? Because everybody else is just sitting around on their freaking hands. Um, No, this, and we said this the other day, there is nothing, uh, there's no rocket science here because there's already eight to 900 clinics that are already doing the same thing. I remember getting uh, operated on over 20 years ago in a private clinic. Um, What he's doing is just uh, creating more of them. Uh, Why is, why, why is this not a good thing? 
again, I mean, I, it, I don't think it's a be all and it's in an end all. I don't think it's uh, it's meant to be that. But, you know, we have um, the premiers all coming together, wanting a meeting with the prime minister. That doesn't happen. You guys come up with reforms. You guys have to be accountable. And Doug Ford goes, OK, no problem with there. Here we go. And then, boom, we have this. And again, I'm the, the only people I'm really having uh, that I'm really trying to figure out who, who really are against this. And even the media is like very cautiously. You know, I don't know, because I don't trust Dofo. But, um, you know, this is a good step uh, in the right direction. And it seems the only ones who are disagreeing with this are those who settle on the socialist side in their ideology or they benefit in some way through membership organization or union dues by constantly plugging more money and more people into the same system that obviously is not working. I think we can all agree on that. So, uh, again, the only ones I, I really hear crying about this are the ones that are comfy in the old system. So here's the thing. I think that if you're going to engage in a reform or a step that will help alleviate backlogs, you know, you've got two provinces where you can get best practices. So what I really hope, Scott, is that Doug Ford's team goes into Saskatchewan and says, okay, what worked? What didn't work? And then they go to BC and they say they ask the same thing. And they just, they put in best practices and a criteria to ensure that it's going to work. I haven't heard that yet. So, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, surgeries for common, um, you know, maladies, for example, cataracts, knees and hips. And let me tell you, if you have a cataract and you have a bad knee and you have a bad hip, those are severe quality of life issues. And those people have their, are having their surgeries push, 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 pushed. So what I'm hoping is that they, you know, they segment, they go, okay, maybe this particular clinic is only going to do cataracts, cataracts all day, all night. That's what they're going to do. And this clinic is going to do knees or, you know, and this clinic is going to do what and, and going to do hips, or maybe do knees and hips. I don't know. But I just don't think that these can be catch-all clinics. And what I'd like to see, Scott, I listen, I want this to work as much as you want this to work. And I know that if you want to get an MRI in this province, you can wait for your hospital or you can go to one of these other private clinics and go get one and, you know, pay a, a fee for it. But at least you get your MRI a lot faster. So we have been operating in this. We've had our toes more than dipped into the, into the water on this. And what people are mainly worried about, Scott, right now, is equal access. So in order to, you know, people hear private clinic and they think, well, now I'm going to have to pay. They're already then, here. They're already here. They're everywhere. They're I everywhere. That. I understand that. I understand that. And I think that if for Doug Ford to really sell this solution and, you know, Doug Ford needs a win. He hasn't really come out with anything that's sort of like everybody, yay, Doug Ford. Really? In the last little while? I don't think you're ever going to get anybody in this province going yay for Doug Ford, although he will win an election or two, because it's just not hip. It's not hip, Elise. It's not hip, Alyssa. Yeah? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
He needs to message this in a way that inspires confidence among the public. You know, before his messages, just hear me out, Scott. You know, he's talking about, well, I'm going to have 14,000 nurses still in, in, in new positions. All they have to do is graduate first. Well, you know, come on. So, you know, message it so that it inspires confidence in your electorate. We understand that this is just going to happen with your OHIP card. You know, we understand that, may, and perhaps we understand that right now this isn't going to cost us anything. But I just think that there's sort of this little bit of inherent distrust um, in Doug Ford really rolling out something that is going to serve all people. And I think from an optics perspective, and let's face it, politics is all about optics, my friend, that if they message this right and they roll this out right and they do what's already been done, but better than Saskatchewan, better than B.C., then he will score points and will be seen as trying to help reform the healthcare system. Get it done. Get it done. All we're hearing is all of these reasons why it potentially will not work. Get it done. And you can't satisfy all people, but you may be able to satisfy the, uh, the majority. No? All right, Alyssa, we're out of time uh, yeah, again. I agree. I agree. And if you've got a cataract and you're walking around and it's extreme pain from your hip or your knee, you're probably thinking, all right, let's go. Let's get this done. But you know what? Let's make sure that the plan is right. Let's make sure that the best practices have been learned and let's do it better than everybody else has agree Alyssa freeman it's we all in agreements here let's move forward then Alyssa freeman pr and pop culture expert love having you on thank you Alyssa. if it was only just you and i running the place Scott, <laughs> let's work on that thank you Alyssa. <laughs> you know i love the polls you know i love uh gauging and, and seeing how you're feeling uh fascinating especially during a global pandemic and now where we are with the world being where it is and new polling from nanos research sees the federal conservatives pulling ahead of the liberals at the start of this new year i'll give you these really quick uh as far as parties uh 35.6 percent favor the conservatives 28.3 percent the liberals 20.7 percent for the ndp the rest are in single digits as far as the leader though who we want for pm for prime minister uh jt still coming out at 30 percent pierre polyevra at 27.5 and jagmeet singh at 16.2 percent to talk about all of this nick nano is with us chief data scientist and founder at nano's research is with us now nick thanks for the time i hope you're well I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? So far, so good. Um, what does it say, Nick, when we see uh, a discrepancy between the leadership of the party and who people want to see as PM and how the party's actually performing? What does it say when a party is leading and yet doesn't have an unpopular or has an unpopular or unknown leader? Well, I'm not sure it'd be fair to say that Pierre Poiliev is unpopular because the reality is, is when we ask Canadians who they would prefer as prime minister, the numbers are actually quite close between Trudeau and Poiliev, basically two percentage points, which is within the margin of error. So, but the key takeaway is that there's no advantage for Pierre Poiliev when it comes to leadership. However, in the ballot box right now, in our latest nanos tracking that we've just released, we have the Liberals with about a seven-point advantage. They're at around 36%, and the uh, the Liberals are, are back about seven points, and the NDP are at about 21. So advantage to the Conservative Party. I guess that means that people, some people are disaffected with the Liberals, and they've decided to park with both the Conservatives and some with the New Democrats, too. So why are the Liberals slipping? This Is this a trend? 
Well, uh, they've been at a disadvantage for the last number of weeks. You know, we know there hasn't been a lot that's going right because everybody's very grumpy. People are worried about mm. a potential downturn in the economy in 2023. When we ask Canadians about the state of the Federation and how federal provincial relations are going, it's not the the numbers are actually quite weak. Um, even when we ask Canadians whether the country's moving in the right or wrong direction, they're divided. So they're very grumpy right now, and it looks like they're taking it out on on the Liberal Party of Canada. And as a result, uh, they're looking at the Conservatives as an alternative. I think what the Liberals have to worry about is whether this firms up, because if this continues for another month, it's harder to turn the numbers around. And uh, so right now, I'd expect the Liberals to come out swinging against Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives to try to stop this trend that's emerging. So if you're the NDP leader or the Conservative leader, how do you play this? What's your strategy? Well, I think actually, ironically, the the Conservatives and the New Democrats are each other's best friends because the Conservatives need the New Democrats to do well to split the progressive vote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing is, is that for the for the New Democrats, if the vote is split, that helps them pick up seats. It helps the Conservatives pick up seats at the uh, expense of the Liberals. So I think for both of those parties, they need to, uh, why don't we just say, have an awkward yet cooperative political dance where they're not necessarily attacking each other, but attacking the Liberals and pushing those Liberal voters both to the progressive NDP and also to the Conservatives. We're seeing a quite a shift in health care as, uh, you know, everybody remembers the provinces were trying to, to force the prime minister to come together for a meeting and such. Never happened. Uh, if you want to see money, there's got to be conditions, um, all of that sort of thing, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Doug Ford accepted conditions, what have you, and then introduces reform policy that we've seen over the last couple of days. And the, the reaction, there is certainly lots of negative reaction against Doug Ford and such. Such, but uh, there's not the divisiveness I thought there would be on this. Is this sh- is this issue uh, uniting us? Is this issue cutting through the extremism and 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 pointing to a, a just get it done, just get it done? Well, healthcare is you know people are united in terms of healthcare and the frustration related to that, and also the yeah. importance of healthcare, whether they're making decisions for someone else or whether it's for themselves. They see things like emergency rooms being closed. You know, long waiting lines for surgeries, difficulty in finding a family physician. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, is that healthcare is usually not a winning issue for the conservatives. It's more likely to be a winning issue for the New Democrats as the party that created public health care and also for the liberals. So expect this to be a key battleground. It looks like the poly of conservatives are focusing on how the liberals have spent so much money and gone into debt and run big deficits and nothing really has happened positively on the health care front. So they're focusing on dollars and cents while the new Democrats are talking about public access. But expect health care to be a key dividing line and battleground in the coming year between all of the three major parties. Nick Danos with us, chief data scientist, founder of Nanos Research. Always fascinating, Nick. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked about this at length 
Uh, and certainly, uh, more specifically, since Russia invaded the uh, Ukraine and, of course, created uh, and weaponized energy through Europe and such. Uh, and very recently, first with uh, uh, Germany's leadership uh, coming here looking for a deal with Canadian uh, liquid natural gas. Uh, Germany, once a world leader in, in innovative renewable technology, now they're building coal mines because they don't have any any energy, any gas. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister said no. Germany went to other sources much dirtier than ours and got the deal that they needed. Japan came much uh, recently, the Prime Minister of Japan. Uh, same, sort of, uh, same sort of response from the Prime Minister. Great article in the National Post from Kenneth Green, Fraser Institute Senior Fellow. And the headline is, Trudeau denies natural gas to another ally in favor of fictive agenda. And Kenneth is with us now. Ken, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well. Good to be with you. Why can't the Prime Minister see a business case for Canadian uh, clean liquid natural gas when the world is asking for it and others are turning to coal uh, because they can't get it? Well, I'd have to say it's because he's wearing ideological blinkers that prevent him from seeing um, what is transparently obvious to pretty much everyone. Uh, and that is that um, where the world is in a situation now where energy is uh, scarce, uh, natural gas particularly, uh, which is the cleanest, really the cleanest of the historic form, major forms of energy production, um, is in short supply and markets are disrupted because of war in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and the, the renewables and, and green energy alternatives that the prime minister uh, favors uh, so strongly are simply not ready for prime time. They have not been ready for prime time for 50 years and likely will not be ready for prime time for at least another 25 uh, in terms of being able to replace natural gas, which is um, a, a super um, effective, efficient, powerful and environmentally uh, friendly form of energy production. So we know that uh, Canada uh, contributes to less than 2% of the world's greenhouse gases. Why are Canadians so convinced that if we get squeezed even more and bring that down, even 50% are completely eliminated, uh, that somehow we're going to save the world as opposed to supplying the world with a clean alternative to an expanding coal industry? Well, I think it's because that's all they've been exposed to uh, in the mainstream media and the media for the last 20 or 30 years is this idea that um, climate change is is uh, such a, a huge looming disaster that we must do every single thing possible all at once, regardless of cost, regardless of impacts, uh, if we're going to be able to hold ourselves up and say that we're, we're good environmental and global citizens. Um, Virtually none of that is actually correct or true, but that's what most people believe. As you point out, Canada's emissions are, are a small share of the global total. What we could effectively do to reduce them without simply close, shutting the country down and just dispersing um, would not be measurable using regular, uh, using even even electronic digital thermometers and, uh, uh, and things. Would, would simply not be measurable even over the next 50 years uh, if we went to zero as or earlier by 2050 as the prime minister would like us to do net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So pe people have just been misled uh, on this file for a long time. They haven't gotten to hear much in the way of, of alternate voices uh, in the media. 
um, including in, in new media, um, as we were, we're learning has not exactly been a open and transparent to different ideas. Um, but uh, so, so unfortunately, people are, are not really um, thinking clearly on the issue of the need for uh, energy uh, in modern societies. And, and most particularly in this case, in the, in the case of Germany and Japan, really, this is not the complicated part of the, of the science. You have, you have two countries that are trading partners that are geopolitical, uh, geopolitically aligned with, with Canadian values. They're literally, because of a war they did not instigate that is beyond their control, they're short of an energy source that Canada could provide, which is cleaner, as you pointed out, than the alternatives. And our answer is no. And, and so it, it boggles the mind. How can we, and, and, you know, again, it boggles the mind that this message has been played for the last 10 or 20 years. I remember asking Elizabeth May this uh, just a, a few months ago. Uh, why don't we work together and get the world off coal um, and, and focus on that instead of all this piecemeal attempt, which is really isn't doing anything? And before I even got a chance to finish the sentence, she said, too late for that. Should have been doing that 20 years ago. Yet I remember asking all the same group 20 years ago, and they gave me the same answer. Had we had done it 20 years ago, where would we be now? So how can we, and this is any environmentalist or anybody, how can we expect to shut off everything if we can't control coal and even get it curbed? Well, the answer, yeah, the answer is we can't. And in fact, one of the ironic things is uh, people probably are too young to remember this, but the transition to natural gas away from coal, that was the environmentalist's major agenda in the 1980s, the 1970s, late 70s, 1980s, uh, and early 1990s, was pushing for natural gas transitions for natural gas buses. I remember when they start, first yep. started introducing natural gas buses, they were emblazoned with clean, burning natural gas. And, and the, it was at the pressure of environmental groups that these things were adopted because the gas, the natural gas then, was much more expensive than coal. Uh, even then, <clears throat> it was considerably more expensive than coal. And far more expensive even than it is now. Um, so, so the answer is, we want we are not going to get away from coal to gas because the environmentalists have already ditched gas, and now they are fixated on wind and solar power only. Basically, water, wind, and sun. Um, even not so much water, but wind and sun. Um, and while they're fixated on that, we'll, I don't think the world is going to make any progress on the other files of an incremental move from coal to either natural gas or nuclear power, another clean alternative, uh, because the fixation is purely wind, 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 solar, solar, solar. Germany was at the forefront of all of this, like you said, decades ago. I mean, they were the leader in all of this, and now they're opening coal plants. Is anybody learning anything from that? Well, I would like to say yes. Uh, unfortunately, it's hard to say that when all of the news keeps saying no, um, because in fact, it's even it's even worse than it seems. Since the coal plants that are that are being proposed now, for example, both uh, in uh, Canada and elsewhere, um, are for the making of steel, which and there's no alternative mm -hmm. to metallurgical coal. They're yeah. not. It's not even about energy production, and those two are being uh, are being opposed. Um, but there's just no realism in this. There's no realism on the table at this point with regard to say accepting that. Look, we require energy as a civilizations, modern civilizations, to survive, and we can't go backwards because it's not. It's not as if we kept all of our old technologies to generate energy that we can use to bring back online. 
we must have modern energy resources. And unfortunately, that that uh, reality uh, is is not centered in the discussion at this point. Um, and I'm not sure how to get it there. Me neither. Uh, the article in the Financial Post, Trudeau denies natural gas to another ally in favor of a fic- uh, fictive agenda. Kenneth P. Green with us, Fraser Institute Senior Fellow. Ken, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Anytime. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Um, uh, we're certainly uh, hearing more and seeing more escalation in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine looking for, obviously, more equipment uh, continuously. Uh, now an issue over tanks and trouble with Germany and the U.S. agreeing on on what and, 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 and whether to send things or not. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So uh, lots of talk of tanks. Ukraine wants them, needs them. Why is Germany hesitant to send them uh, this an escalation of the war in the view of Germany and, and the U.S.'s involvement here? Germany has been very reluctant. They, they have been dragged along. At first, they only sent uh, helmets, as you may remember, and then they upped uh, dramatically the number of uh, weapons that they've been sending. But they have uh, a kind of red line, it seems, in sending really heavy weapons, such as tanks. And not only that, they are not allowing countries that own German Leopard 2 tanks that have been willing to send them over to Ukraine, they are not getting permission from the Germans to do so because when these weapons, sophisticated tanks are sold, there's a stipulation that they cannot be transferred without the permission of the exporting state. And so Germany, Olaf Scholz, is not even willing to give that permission. What he has said repeatedly is that Germany will not be the first country to supply heavy tanks to Ukraine. Well, Britain, in a sense, challenged the Germans by deciding that they would send the Ukrainians 14 Chieftain II tanks. These are very sophisticated tanks. They are comparable to the Leopard II. And at this moment, there's a kind of standoff where the Germans are saying, well, let's see what the United States does. Let's see if you can send it jointly. Can you provide us with cover? So it does not appear that Germany is taking the initiative because we do not want to be punished by the Russians. We do not want to provoke the Russians. But this idea of provoking Russians, this is long gone. Uh, the Russians do not need a provocation. They have launched this unprovoked attack, and they are continuing mass attacks uh, on Ukrainian cities, on infrastructure. So at what point do the Germans, and for that matter, the Americans decide that this is not just a matter of preventing Ukraine from failing, but maybe it's time to allow Ukraine to succeed. Uh, that, that was my next question. Is that the objective, to win or just survive here and, and keep them propped up? Is is uh, is Germany being held hostage by Russia, or are they concerned that this will escalate? I mean, is it? I, I guess you could say it's a bit of both, but is it more so that uh, Russia controls their energy and, and has the finger on Germany? Germany has done a lot to become energy independent. They have built these terminals to get liquefied natural gas. Olaf Scholz has been very proud to say that 
Germany is fully stocked for the winter, that they will not have an energy uh, meltdown. Uh, they will be able to heat their homes, keep industry running. So it's not so much that uh, they would fear economic uh, retaliation because that already has taken place and it has not been particularly effective, but rather there's a historical legacy in that Olaf Scholz is also an extremely cautious leader. He's being urged by some of his coalition partners to provide those tanks or at least give permission. He has been urged by several of the Eastern European states, but he has not budged yet. And it's not only a German problem, to be frank. Uh, President Biden, the American administration, just announced a new package uh, of something like $3 billion to Ukraine. It will contain a 100 striker uh, armored fighting vehicles. Uh, these are tank-like. They are wheeled vehicles. This is in addition to <clears throat> to the Bradley uh, armors. And uh, President Biden has not taken the leadership. So it's almost as if President Biden and uh, Olaf Scholz, Chancellor Scholz of Germany, are waiting on each other. Uh, they each seem to want to lead from behind, but not lead. Uh, so we talked about this earlier. You alluded to this. What's the objective here? Is it to win or just make it look like we're doing something? Here's the question. Will this war need to escalate in order for it to end? It, it is It is a crucial question, and uh, I do not think we have an answer. It is fine to be prudent. No one wants to have an escalation that would involve a direct conflict between NATO and Russia. I don't think the Russians are prepared or wish to do that either. But the day when we have to be super cautious uh, and we have to worry about provoking the Russians, that has gone by with the mass attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, on the killing of civilians, when Russia shifted from a war of aggression to a war of terror. And so Ukraine is sustaining such heavy civilian losses that this cannot continue indefinitely. And uh, even though they have surprised uh, most observers with their tenacity, inventiveness, and the capacity to resist Russia and to take back territory, uh, Russia may be preparing a new offensive in the spring. And this is an opportunity for Ukraine to take back that territory, at least to get a situation where if there are to be negotiations, it could negotiate in favorable terms to liberate uh, most, if not all, of the territory that has been illegally occupied by Russia. But for that, they need to have the capacity. And as uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, the, the Russian uh, chess player and uh, political dissident, has said, the West has always seemed to be a day late, that uh, they're doing uh, uh, today what they should have done yesterday. And so even though there's been a great deal of aid sent to Ukraine, this war is consuming astonishing quantities of equipment, and particular equipment is needed for an offensive by Ukraine, and that is heavy tanks. Aura Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Aura, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've been talking an awful lot about uh, the reforms put forward by the Ontario government uh, trying to fix or at least move towards fixing uh, the Canadian health care system. Um, many are concerned that bolstering private 
uh, health care in Ontario will lead to professionals being poached from the public system. I can completely understand this, and certainly these are all valid concerns that need to be addressed. But, man, I cannot believe this is the only reason that the opposite side of this discussion has on why we should not be doing this. Uh, that's like saying, you know what, um, we're not going to build that new fire station because we've only got so many firefighters. Then you build the station, you train the firefighters, and you hire more for the future. That, that's what progress is. That's uh, that's that's being well planned. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on all of this? I, I haven't really seen any real tangible reasons not to move forward with this and a lot of, well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? And, and this could lead to that, which is obviously great concerns, but it, is it any reason not to do anything? Right. And and let me disclose on this. By the way, I don't consult to anybody anywhere. I did do two papers for the McDonald laurier Institute think tank about seven years ago, five, seven years ago, on this very issue of um, call it private clinics. I don't even like the word private clinics because they're within the single payer model. And uh, as Hillary Clinton said many, many times, it doesn't matter who delivers it. The question is, who is paying for it? Is it the private insurance companies billing the patient or is it going to the single payer called the government? And Hillary Clinton has made that argument repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And she is, you know, sort of the leader of, of, of progressive thought on, on public uh, health care. But my, my, my larger, I want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of this claim because it does deal with economics and it does deal with something that I thought we had long settled, oh, about 300 years ago. And that's this idea of Adam Smith, you know, the famous guy that invented market economy and capitalism. And he wrote that famous book about the pin factory and specialization and saying that when you specialize, you're far more productive. And he used the example of the pin factory. Well, a hospital, and remember the Ontario Hospital Association, Anthony Dale, is very critical of this. A hospital is a superb example of specialization. I am a consumer and a user of hospitals. I've had not one, but two full knee replacements, thank you very much, in the hospital. And I can assure you, because I asked my surgeon what his, maybe, maybe I'm rude and maybe I shouldn't have asked that, but I said, you know, can you please tell me how much experience you have? Because, hey, you're cutting open my leg. And he said, I've done, I've been doing surgeries for about 25 years. I've done over, I can't remember, 2000 or something. She says, is that good enough? I said, oh, yes, yes, thank you very much. But my point where I'm going with this is I would never allow the, you know, the hospital would never assign somebody who was a heart surgeon to go and do my knee replacement. And nobody would assign someone who does cataracts to do a heart bypass. There's the hospital is rife with specialization. Where am I going with this? If you remove the cataracts, that is not going to cannibalize doctors from the heart or heart cardiology division or the oncology division. In other words, if you take the cataract department, let's call it the cataract department that does cataracts, and you take it out of Hamilton General Hospital and you put it into a clinic, 
There's no pouching because you just take the whole damn thing, lock, stock, and barrel, and move it out. And for those who say, you don't know what you're talking about, that can't be done. I lived through it in 1990. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And the arthritis clinic, the one and only arthritis clinic in all of Ottawa, a city of a million people, was at the Civic Hospital, a very prestigious hospital. Five years later, in its infinite wisdom, everyone decided, no, we got to move the arthritis clinic lock, stock, and barrel from the Civic Hospital over to the Ottawa General Hospital. So they did. So I started going there. Five years later, they said, no, 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 not going to stay there. We're going to move it over to the Riverside Hospital. And they moved it lock, stock, and barrel. This is on the public record. Anybody can double check what I'm saying. And they moved the entire clinic, nurses, nurses, assistants, computers, files, doctors. They just moved the whole damn thing over to the Riverside. You could just as easily do it yet again into a clinic on one of the major roads in Ottawa or in Hamilton or anywhere else. So my point is, a hospital is a package of a whole bunch of different specializations. So you take the minor specializations out of the hospital, knees, hips, cataracts, and you just take them holus bolus, lock, stock, and barrel, and put them into a cl- into a clinic <laughs> uh, 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 on, on some major arterial. And then you allow the hospitals to focus on what they're supposed to focus on, which is the really important stuff, the big ticket stuff, trauma, um, uh, gunshot uh, wounds, uh, a drug overdose, cancer, heart, stroke. We all know as human beings, what the big ticket stuff is. We can make a distinction between an, uh, you know, an ingrown toenail that's become infected versus having a major heart attack. And we want All right, Ian, so- to deal with the big stuff. So, Ian, I, I've even had a professor on today talking about this. Rather than spend this money in a clinic, in a private clinic, uh, nobody wants their public money going to a private clinic. Why not just use that money to upgrade and have more people doing it in the hospital? I'm thinking, well, at least with a clinic, and tell me if I'm wrong, you're paying for procedure. In a hospital, you're paying for the whole hospital and everything that comes involved with it. Uh, I agree with you. Let me use slightly different language, but I'm agreeing with you. I'm going to use my business and strategy language. The overhead costs of a hospital are very large. They have very large overhead, whereas in clinics, their overhead costs are much smaller. In fact, my own, Ian Lee's own GP, 10 years ago in Ottawa, went to an accountant, paid a lot of money, prepared a business plan that went into the Kathleen Wynne government to create a nip and uh, a, a, a hip and knee clinic in the city of Ottawa. They turned it down. And, but I said to him after, because I, I talked to him as a, you know, professional. I'm an academic. He was a doctor and uh, he's passed away, sadly, uh, uh, an older man. And, uh, I said, how, how is this going to work? I said, are you going to charge more? He said, no, no, no. I propose that they would re- reimburse me, my mm-hmm. clinic, the exact identical amount that they reimburse every hospital in Ontario for a knee or hip replacement because there's a set amount set by OHIP what that replacement is. I said, well, then how are you going to do it any better than they are? And he said, because the overhead in a clinic is far 
smaller. They're more efficient because they only focus on knees and hips, mm. whereas a hospital has enormous overhead. So they're, it's the most expensive way of delivering medicine. Now, you know, when I, I hope I never have a heart attack, but if I do, I want to be dealt with by a hospital because yeah. they have really serious people there and they've got the resources. But the idea that I need my, I was two and a half years on the wait list in our city, my city to get a, a, a full knee replacement. Hmm. And if there had been a private clinic and somebody had said to me, you know, Ian, you can get it done in uh, two weeks down the road at a private clinic. But if you want to get it done in the hospital to be in two and a half years, I would have said, are you mad? Why would I want to wait two and a half years just for a routine knee replacement? So this is the argument. I'm, this is not about an attack on public health care. This is not an attack on hospitals and the superb doctors and nurses there. It's about that is a very high tech institution called hospitals. And we want them to do very high tech medicine. We want them to do the big ticket stuff, mm -hmm. the really serious stuff of life and death. I I want my knee to replay, be replaced much more quickly than two and a half years of the suffering I went through. And I know it can be done because I've looked at other countries in the high income countries, the rich countries, you know, France, Australia, yeah. Sweden. And you know that they in every country in the OECD. They have private clinics and they have clinics doing the minor routine surgery. It's not done in hospitals. We, Canada, are the weirdos. We are the outliers. This is not the way they do medicine in Germany, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. And so why don't we look at best practices and see what the Ian, other high-income countries are doing? We're out of time. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, trying to reform Canada's health care system. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Uh, well, now dry January is turning into dry February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. New guidelines came out the other day uh, that basically said you shouldn't be drinking anything. Forget this, however many drinks a day or a week or whatever. You shouldn't be drinking anything. And uh, over the years, we've talked a lot to Dan Malik, professor of health sciences, medical historian specializing in alcohol and drug policy over the years, director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Brock University, whether it's cannabis, whether it's alcohol. Uh, and he's got a very different take on this new set of guidelines. Uh, and Dan Malik is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. I was fascinated to see your uh, thread of tweets and how you laid this out and such and got quite a bit of response. So, uh, again, this is a complete 180 from the study before this 11 years ago. Uh, I talked to people about this yesterday and they said, well, things have advanced now. We're smarter and whatever. But you got a completely different take. Explain it to people. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it, it's hard to get into this without really getting cross-eyed over the data. But um, what what they've done, they've they've offered uh, first of all a suggestion that like one to two drinks is low risk, and then they get up three to six is medium, and then above seven, it, I think they say something like your chances of developing these diseases increases radically, I think is the word they use. Um, yet their data doesn't really indicate that. What they've done is they've there's some some pro I have some problems with the presentation of this. So they said they this is based on six thousand studies, but it's not. They selected out 
16 studies. Um, some of them are fairly new research, um, and they look very specifically at types of conditions that could be linked to alcohol. So, for example, you take something like laryngeal cancer, um, which has relatively low incidence, and it's also linked more to smoking and other things, or even breast cancer, which has fairly high incidence relatively, but it's linked to a whole bunch of other things. But then they look at they present data that says, you know, if you have a certain number of drinks per day, you could increase your 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 risk by, say, 100%. <clears throat> that sounds pretty scary, right? And in fact, on their tables, that 100% is in screaming red, like terror red, you know, like Google Maps traffic. <laughs> and, um, and yet, it, they don't talk about incidents. So you don't have a sense of what if the incidence of this, like the, the chance of getting this illness is really low and you double it, it's still pretty low, right? And so that's not oh, presented well. And it kind of, if you're talking about increased harms as a percentage, it's called relative risk, and that's relative to the risk you already have um, versus absolute risk, which would actually tell us what is the risk of having this? That's the, the one thing. There's a whole bunch of other things. The other thing that I think is a really big concern is that, you know, we've talked about this a number of times and, you know, people drinking is intertwined with a lot of people's lives in very healthy ways, you know, getting together with friends, celebrating events, you know, marking occasions, commiserating if someone's having a bad day. And often it doesn't involve getting really loaded and it doesn't involve binging every day. Um, and those things are actually have really positive health benefits, getting together with friends, celebrating things, um, the relaxation effect, you know, if you can cut a bit of your relaxation, we know that that but lowering anxiety, lowering stress, lowering negative, so-called negative emotions has actual physical benefits. And none of this is considered in this type of research. There's no suggestion that there is a there can be any benefit from drinking alcohol. It's just degrees of harm. And that's a big problem because if you know if you're if your job is to look for harm, you're gonna find harm, right? Um, if your job is to kind of present some sort of uh, understanding of of where alcohol fits in your life and maybe in certain conditions with certain pre pre conditions for certain illnesses you might want to moderate yourself that's a conversation people are already having with their physicians right so this is really i actually say it's irresponsible research because it's it has the potential to do damage in the sense of causing more stress for people causing more worry um, as well as possibly having people reduce activities that are that are demonstratedly healthful, like the things they do when drinking, getting together with friends, socializing, having a positive community connections. Those are also demonstrated to be incredibly good for your health. They just remove all of that and say, you know, drink very little. Um, and then, so when you ramp up panic and fear and stress, you, you, are, you can actually do damage. So are you saying that this info has been taken completely out of context? Um, yeah, I'm saying that it that what they're they're not pro providing context or the type of context right. they're providing is not really helpful uh, for uh, uh, someone who wants to read this and understand it. I mean, I, I've spoken to some epidemiologists about the way they present data, and they're baffled. They're saying, I don't really understand what they're saying here, what they're trying to say here. Um, and some of the real nuggets are, are interesting, talking about sort of the old 
uh, five to or 10 to 15 drinks a week, which is, was often stated as two to three drinks a day. Um, that could result in, this sounds pretty scary, 755 years of life loss, YLL, per 1,000 people. That sounds like, holy crap, but that means you could, your life could be, uh, um, what is that, three quarters of a year shorter, right? Which, I mean, the, 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 the interesting thing about that is we're all going to die. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's no question. I'm pretty sure that that's 100 percent uh, risk or harm, risk not harm. But whether that is the kind of radical lifestyle change, and I'll use the word like radical, um, to achieve a fairly small outcome. And as people have said to me, a pretty miserable life. You know, if you can't have a drink once in a while, um, so do you want to extend it? Um, that's that's kind of something that isn't considered here, and really, I think is 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 problematic. And I think is also the reason a lot of people are reacting very strongly against this. And and I had a lot of positive feedback from this, like just people saying thank you for giving another perspective. Which was where did this come from? Where did this study come from? Why do this? I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here, you know, Dan. I mean, anybody's gotten back, that's a good thing. But why would they take this position? Where who are they? Uh, well this is the Canadian Center on uh, substance use and addiction, and they're fairly well-funded, well-respected um, uh, yeah. uh, researchers on harm reduction and on incidents of drug use and things like that. They, I mean, the substance use and addiction, at one point I said substance abuse and addiction, and, and I'm wrong about that, it's substance use and addiction. Uh, it's really something that, that is useful to study. But the, so, so that's who they are. But the, the, what it seems to be is uh, when when you're when you're looking for harm, you're going to find harm. As I said, and the, their job, their profession, their careers are built on identifying harms and trying to reduce yeah. them. And so they're looking at alcohol as harmful. Um, and I'm not going to deny that. Like there are things people can do with alcohol that will really harm them. I mean, yeah. probably all had mornings where we just curse the bottle, right? But um, this approach is really problematic. And you know, as as a historian, I'm also hearing the echoes of the 19th century temperance movement where they were talking about things like um, the demon rum, which will get into you and just make you this crazy person or, or like make you destroy your life. Right. Um, and that they don't use the language of demon rum, but I see the exact same kind of um, representation or kind of rhetoric there where um, for example, the, the most vivid one is about um, they talk about uh, intimate partner violence and I'm not about to endorse intimate partner violence. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but they're the, the way they represent it makes it sound like someone who drinks is just going to go and beat their partner. And that's just not mm. the case. It's, it's totally disrespecting and, and disregarding the, uh, the, the context and all of the other things that go into this terrible uh, behavior, just suggesting that if you drink more, alcohol will drive you to this. Is basically the demon rum getting into you, right? So that's a that's a big perception problem, and I think that that sort of is a tell about what's really going on here, which is as some people and I have also argued is kind of neo temperance. It's like mm. trying to stigmatize alcohol to the point where people just stop and governments yeah. crack down, and uh, yeah, and then it's all it's all dry dry January. Dan Malik, Dan Malik with us, Professor of Health Sciences, medical historian specializing in alcohol and drug policy, director of Center for Canadian Studies, Brock University, talking about the latest alcohol guidelines. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
My pleasure, Scott, you as well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank wrote in to say, Hi, Scott, I got a trivia question for you, which might be hard to answer, yet might not even have a logical answer or better yet, a true answer. Why has my home natural gas bill doubled all of a sudden? That is a damn good question, Frank. 